All right. One other thing, uh, as you can tell, clearly I'm very much under the weather here, so I apologize, folks, and uh, hopefully it won't be too much of a, a distraction, but we will get through this together, I promise. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We have so much to cover today, and I'm going to try to move at a pretty fast pace. So I'll pray, kind of give you a, uh, somewhat of an outline of how we're going to approach this, and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for the, the privilege to gather together as a family, as saints, as believers, and to worship you, to sing and to praise you, and to offer up thanksgiving to your holy name. And so now, Father, we ask that as we move into the, the next part of our worship service, that our worship would continue, that this would simply be an extension of that, God, and that we have come to hear from you. We have come to sit at your feet. We have come to learn from your word. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us as our helper, as our teacher, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would move in this place, that your word would come to life, and that... Uh, you would minister to each person in this room as the need exists. Lord, some people need to be refreshed. They need encouragement, God. They've come here hurting and tired and exhausted, not knowing if they can make it another day. And there are some people in here, God, who are very far away from You, Lord, and they need to be convicted. They need to be challenged. Lord, I pray that You would draw them back to Yourself. There are people here who don't know You at all. I pray that this would be the day of salvation, that Your Spirit would convict of sin and that uh, folks would respond to the Gospel message and that we would see new life in this place today. So, Lord, have Your way as Your Word goes forth. We love You and we bless Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned last week, this book is written by Luke. You could say that it is um, a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. And he's really addressing what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, the disciples uh, were baptized, the church is born, and then the rest of the book is given to the actions of the apostles as they go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and they do mighty works and wonders. And we particularly see Paul going around planting churches and uh, this is not every single detail that we could possibly get about the church, obviously. It's just uh, highlighting for us some of the major events, and it really helps us to understand how the church started and how it exploded and how it made its way all around the world. So last week, uh, we left. The disciples were waiting on the promise, and we talked about the promise, what the promise of the Father was, and that was that the Holy Spirit would come that we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon us and that we would be empowered to be witnesses. And for the, the disciples, they were witnesses there in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, all around the world. And I talked about what that means for us as we are witnesses in our home, in our workplace, at school, in the church, in our community, in the Bay Area, all around the world, this is something that is available to all of us and we need it. Amen. We need anything and everything that the Lord would graciously give us. So today, we're going to see the fulfillment of the promise. The fulfillment of the promise. The Holy Spirit will come. They will be baptized. And that's what the first part of the chapter deals with. The people, the bystanders, they see this. They, they react to this. 
Peter stands up and gives a spectacular sermon. And that is the, the bulk of this chapter really is a sermon that Peter gives to the people. He quotes Psalms, he quotes David, he quotes Joel. He testifies of Christ. He calls people to respond, to repent. He gives them application. And then the chapter kind of closes out with the culture of the, the early church. What was the church like in its infancy as, uh, as the Spirit was poured out and people put their trust in Christ? What was the, the earliest church like? And it's so cool and it really in so many ways uh, is a, a road marker for us. It helps us understand what should the culture of our church be and how are we doing in these areas. And so uh, that is what we're looking at. As I said, it's a lot. So let's dig in. Verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're told that the day of Pentecost had fully come. This is one of the three annual major feasts in Israel. All right, now there were actually seven feasts that are given in Leviticus 23 and expounded on in other places, but this is one of the three major feasts. So you have um, Passover, and then 50 days later you have Pentecost, so roughly seven weeks later. And so Jerusalem would have been, it would have uh, been bursting at the seams with pilgrims at this point. This would have probably been the most well-attended feast just because of traveling conditions, the weather this time of year. And so such was the case. <clears throat> now they're waiting. All of a sudden comes this rushing mighty wind. And it says that there were divided tongues as of fire. And so I, I think it's safe to say that they would understand this to be the presence of God as we consider this idea of the rushing wind and and fire so often throughout the Old Testament. We see the correlation there. And so undoubtedly they would know something incredible is happening here. This is God moving in their midst. It was a manifestation of God's presence. Now I've tried to consider what is this... Um, uh, let's see, what's the phrase here? Uh, a sound from heaven, a mighty wind filled the whole house. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire try to understand what exactly does that mean is it was it visible and it, it was divided so i would say that it was some sort of a visible manifestation that it, it gave the appearance of fire i think in some ways this is probably similar to when jesus was baptized and the holy spirit uh, descended and it said that it alighted upon him like a dove i don't know that it was actually a dove but it in some way it was it gave the appearance of of a, of a dove. And, and so I think that's kind of the idea here. It wasn't some big boom that just hit everybody. It actually divided. It separated and one landed on each person. Nothing like this throughout the Bible had happened up to that point or after. This was truly uh, a very unique experience that happened. So when, when this did happen, it says that they began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So they were up in the room waiting, and it doesn't really tell us here, but it appears that they go from the upper room or wherever they're at out into the public area. 
kind of seems to happen seamlessly because now all of a sudden there are all these bystanders here and people are seeing what's happening. They're hearing this. They're shocked. They're amazed. Peter launches off into this, this sermon. So verse 5 here. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Are you guys impressed that I was able to just blow through that like that? Okay. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. They're drunk. And so we're told here that there are devout men from every nation. As I said, this was a, a popular time for pilgrims to come from all over to participate in this feast, uh, especially Pentecost, as I said. And it's interesting because all of these different nations that are represented here, they said, we hear these people speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, these were Galileans. Galileans, they had a very interesting accent. They were oftentimes picked on or mocked. They were kind of considered, you know, the, the country folk, the rural people. And they, they had almost somewhat of a speech impediment. And so Galileans, you could really pick them out in a crowd by their speech. In fact, that's what happened with Peter. When he betrayed Christ, he was out warming himself by the fire, and people kept picking up on the fact that he was a Galilean. His speech betrayed him. And so everybody, they know that something incredible is happening here. This is not normal. These are Galileans. And how are they all speaking in our languages the, the wonderful works of God? So they're praising the Lord. I would say, first and foremost, they are magnifying and glorifying God, praising Him for His wonderful works. It could be that they are preaching the gospel in, in different languages. Hard to say. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that there were people mocking. That was the case all throughout and to this very day. There will always be mockers. There will always be people who doubt, people who are skeptical, and such was the case here. But I want to just take a moment, I'll address that again, but I want to take a moment and point to something here. We are seeing the gift of tongues in operation here in the New Testament. And I want to address that. And I just want to speak in brief about uh, kind of our, our view, uh, especially at Calvary Chapel, how we interpret the Scriptures regarding the gift of tongues particularly. Um, as I have said before, we are continuationists. Now, what does that mean? All right, well, there are a group of people, good, godly Christian folks, who would classify themselves as cessationists. And what, that, what they mean by that is they believe that the, the sign gifts, prophecy, words of knowledge, healing, speaking in tongues, interpretations of tongues, that those ceased. Those ceased after the first generation. They died off with the apostles and so they would call themselves cessationists now we are continuationists we believe that those gifts absolutely are still in operation and they are for us today in the church 
Now, this is hard because there are so many people out there who absolutely abuse this. There are people who undoubtedly are professing to be operating in the gifts, and they're not. And they get so extreme that it scares us, and it causes us to want to run in the other direction, right? And you certainly have people on both sides. You have the people swinging from the chandeliers, and you have the people who came with their bolt cutters to cut them down. All right, they're not having it. And so we kind of take this middle ground. We believe that you cannot read the Scriptures and walk away with this idea, truly the plain reading, that those gifts had ceased. And that that was where I came to in my own personal walk. I came to a certain point where I thought, if I were alone on an island, I had no Bible teachers, no commentaries, nothing of of that uh, sort, and I just read the Bible for myself, I would not think, okay, yes, these gifts ceased with the apostles. And so... We believe that there is a time and a place for these giftings to function. And we believe that you will kind of see them happen in different ways. And so there is, uh, well, let me just say this. It's in your notes. I want to point this out before we move on. I put a link here for PastorMarkKirk.com. You'll notice that. He was a Calvary Chapel pastor in Tennessee, Knoxville. And he did such a wonderful job teaching on all of these things in depth. So it's about a 10 to 12 part uh, series. I would encourage you guys to listen to this. It is very educational. You'll be so encouraged. And he really does a wonderful job from beginning to end uh, of dealing with these. And you can also pick specific sermons that deal with with, uh, certain topics. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing uh, necessarily. But I would encourage you to do that. We simply don't have time to uh, treat it as I wish we could. So, uh, But please do, guys. Follow up. Listen to that. All right. So as I said... We believe that there are basically three major functions which we see the tongues. We see known languages. We see people that speak a language that they could not have known any other way other than it was God's supernatural empowering. And so often this would be for the purpose of probably sharing the gospel with somebody who you could not otherwise communicate with. The Scriptures also seem to speak of an unknown prayer language. The person themselves, they don't even necessarily know what they're saying. But they know that they are speaking to God, that they are praying in their spirit. It's a mystery, and I have some Scriptures I want to share regarding that. But then there also seems to be a a type of tongues where the person speaking it still doesn't necessarily know what they're saying, but it is a message that is for the congregation to hear. And there should be somebody present who has the gift of interpretation of tongues. And they can interpret this and they can share for the congregation what this word was. So there seems to be three major uh, distinctions there between the giftings of uh, tongues. So in your notes, I have some scriptures. I want to cover these really quickly. So the unknown prayer language. 1 Corinthians 14 is one of the key chapters that you would deal with when you want to have a better understanding of this. So I'll read it here. Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but he speaks to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, 
unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So Paul's making the argument here that there is the gift of prophecy, and this can manifest itself in a couple of ways. Either it's forth-telling, like I'm just simply speaking out the Word of God in a way that makes sense to you, in a way that encourages your heart. I'm prophesying right now in that sense. But then there's the foretelling, when someone seems to have a supernatural word of wisdom or knowledge, or maybe even have, has the ability, they know something is going to happen in the, the future. Okay, So that's kind of the other side of it. And what Paul is saying here is that when you speak in tongues, no one knows what you're saying. It's between you and God. It's for your own personal edification. And so it's better that you prophesy in a public gathering. That way everybody can benefit thereby. You following me? Are you? You tracking with me, guys? And so it seems that he's making a distinction here. There's a personal, private prayer language that is for you, between you and God, that is for your own edification, and that's fine. Uh, but in the public gathering, it's not the best because prophesying or prophecy is what edifies everybody. Okay? Now, here is the, the other side of it when Paul addresses it in such a way that there ought to be an interpreter. 1 Corinthians 14:26 and, and following here it says how is it then brethren whenever you come together each of you has a psalm has a teaching has a tongue has a revelation has an interpretation let all things be done for edification and just for some of the uninitiated here edification it's one of those bible words it means in building up encouraging somebody and so he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, then let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So again, there seems to be this distinction here. If you're going to speak in tongues in the church, there needs to be an interpreter for the edification of the body. If there's not, then you, need to, you can do it privately. It's between you and God. And he says that if there is an interpreter, then this is the way it needs to happen. Only one at a time, no more than three, and there has to be an interpreter. Okay, So he puts kind of a small emphasis on this. This is not the main gift, and Paul is making that point. So he says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. So there's, there it is as far as I'm concerned. This is what the Bible says earnestly desire to prophesy, but do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So we believe that that gift is in operation today and that there are different ways that you will see it happen. You don't generally see it in this worship service, particularly the aspect where there would be an interpreter because the Spirit of God is speaking to hearts right now as the Word is going forth. In our minds, if someone were to stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord, the Holy Spirit is interrupting Himself. Does that make sense? And so uh, we definitely believe in decent and in order. And so we have a time that we would set aside that would be designed for people to be able to function in these giftings in a corporate setting. We call it an afterglow. And it doesn't happen in the main service. And it's interesting because we have gotten so concerned with let all things be done decently and in order that we've gotten away from, let all things be done. You know, we're, we're so worried, so uh, concerned about things being abused or not done properly that we just don't do it at all. 
And that has been a real complaint in Calvary Chapel as of late, is that we are professing continuationists, but we are practicing cessationists. Because you wouldn't know any different when you come into our assembly. You wouldn't think that we actually believe these things. And so I, for one, would love to see us get a little more passionate in our worship service. And I would love to see people functioning within their giftings and and being used of the Lord in this sense. And so we'll talk more about these things in the the coming months. I would encourage you, as I said, to, to follow up with that link that I gave you there. I just want to make a couple of points about tongues before we move on. The Scriptures teach that tongues are not the greatest gift. Okay? There are other gifts that trump that. They're, they're better. And ultimately, love is the greatest. You can have all of these gifts, but if you don't have love, then it means absolutely nothing. Not all Christians have the gift of tongues. That's okay. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to the church as He sees fit. Not everyone is going to have that gift. Tongues are not the absolute manifestation of a person having the Spirit of God. And some people would tell you that. That you don't have the Spirit of God. You don't have, you're not truly born again if you don't speak in tongues. That is false. That is not scriptural. And we don't put pressure on people to speak in tongues. I've had that, been, that has been done to me. We don't coax and pressure and teach. I had a guy in Tennessee, very wonderful brother. He came in and he, he uh, wanted to meet with me and we have been having conversations along these lines and he, uh, he wanted to pray for me that I would receive the Spirit and that I would speak in tongues. And so I'm sitting there and he's praying and it's starting to get really weird and uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh man, you know, I, I want to honor this guy. He's a, a sweet brother. And um, he said, now just start making noises. And just start making noises. Just do, da, be, ba, just like that. And he was like, and, and I said... Um, Brother, I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't, I can't do that. I don't think that's right. And, uh, and he understood. And he said, you know, I went through the same thing too when I was a new believer. He said, I still had a lot of the, the devil in me. And I'm like, oh, okay, so I've got Satan in me. That's the problem here. That's why I, I can't do that. And so anyways, you know, theology, man, people can get it a little skewed sometimes. Um, but, you know, we do believe in the private prayer language. When people are worshiping the Lord, they may just enter into this language that they themselves don't even know. But by faith, we just believe that it, it's of the Lord. It, we're, we're speaking in the Spirit. It's mysteries, but it edifies. It edifies. And I've seen it happen in places where there were people who spoke and there were interpretations. And I've seen it greatly abused. Um, and you can pretty often tell when that is the case. So, at any rate... Uh, kind of back into our sermon, I just wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about this gift because this is where we first see it kind of happening in the Scriptures. All right. So now Peter is going to address the, uh, the mockers, verse 14. And we're going to move pretty quickly from this point forward. So Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So Peter rejects the notion that they are drunk based on the time of day it is, 9 a.m., although I've known many people that wasn't about to stop them. And uh, Peter points out that this is actually fulfillment. This was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And so Peter is going to point to the Scriptures here. He's going to quote Joel... um, I think it's uh, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. So, moving on here in the text, verse 17. 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid servants and on my, excuse me, my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Love that verse. So as I said, Peter is quoting Joel. This would be a partial fulfillment. Joel is actually speaking of the the awful, the awesome, the terrible day of the Lord when God visits this earth with judgment and He pours out His wrath that has been stored up He pours it out on the nations. See, we're living in uh, the age of grace. And we have been given the truth. God has sent His Son to die for us, for the sins of the world. And now the choice is set before us. And God's wrath is being stored up. And there will come a day when God pours His wrath out on this world on a worldwide, cataclysmic, monumental, awful Level And so sometimes I, I do get a little concerned when something bad happens and someone says, well, that was the judgment of God on these people. My friends, when God's judgment is poured out, it's going to be a lot, lot worse than that. You understand? And so we're in the, the age of grace. And so uh, praise God for that. And if you don't know Him, I would encourage you, today is the day. Put your trust and your faith in the finished work of Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So we do believe that oftentimes when you're dealing with prophecies in the Scriptures that there are partial fulfillments. Oftentimes someone will give a prophecy and we may see some partial fulfillment happen in the near future which really validates that if that happened you can count on the fact that when the time comes and it, is, it will be fulfilled in its entirety. So we essentially would say this is, in its strictest sense, talking about the day that God visits the world in judgment. But there is a partial fulfillment here that Peter refers to when he says that this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel regarding the outpouring of God's Spirit. And then again, I couldn't pass this up. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes that in Romans 10.13. He's quoting Joel uh, 2, I think that's um, 2.32 right there. And so... Uh, that is a, that's a sweet verse. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Alright, now Peter is going to begin to testify of Christ. And so he has cleared up this notion that they're drunk, and he says this was actually what was spoken of by Joel, and now he's going to just hammer down on Christ and the Gospel. So he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So Peter is hammering down with the gospel now. And I just want you guys to take note. The Spirit came upon Peter, and he is a different man. He is, he is boldly preaching very offensive truths to these people. And he is, he is railing accusations at them and calling them to the carpet, as it were. And so we can see as the Spirit has come upon Peter that he has truly been transformed. 
He has truly been empowered. That which Christ said would happen has happened. And now we see he, is, he just handles the Scriptures masterfully and He is confronting these people uh, in the Spirit. And so it says here that Jesus was a man attested by God to you in miracles and wonders. That is to say that Jesus was authenticated by His miracles and His wonders and signs. He was absolutely who He said He was. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and then He raised someone from the dead. You have a pretty good reason to believe this guy is telling you the truth. It says that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He was not a victim. God had set in motion that He would secure salvation for a people, for His people. He sent His Son for this very purpose. And Jesus knew it all along. For this reason I came. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And there was no other choice there was no other way it was that was the only way you know when he said can this cup pass from me it could not pass from him it had to be the cross it had to be if there was any other way for salvation to take place then buddha could save allah could save good works could save but they don't it is only in christ he was validated he was attested he was authenticated by miracles and this was all according to God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. And he said, you, however, are to be blamed here. You are not innocent. You, by lawless hands, took this man and crucified him and put him to death. And may I just say, it was my sin that put him there. It was your sins that put him there. But Praise God that that couldn't hold him down. Amen? He could not be held by death. He rose again from the grave victorious over sin, over death. And so now if we call upon the name of the Lord, if we believe that the Lord Jesus came and that He lived a perfect life and that He died the death He did not deserve and rose again from the grave three days later, if we put our trust in that and repent of our sins, call upon His name, we will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the Gospel message, my friends. Most of us in here know it. I'm certain that there are a few in our midst who don't. And so today at the end of the service, as we close with a song, there's going to be a time given for people to come up and receive prayer. And I want you to take very seriously where you stand here. Do you know the Lord? Have, has your sins been washed away? by the blood of Christ? Are you forgiven? Have you been set free? Do you have eternal life? You can have that here today. Alright, moving on verse 25. Now Peter is going to quote the Psalms regarding the resurrection of Christ. For David says concerning Him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter is quoting Psalm 16, 8-10. This was a messianic psalm, a prophecy from King David, speaking of what we sometimes refer to as the greater David. Jesus is the son of David in that he was a direct descendant from the line of David. And so generally they would consider the, the, the patriarch as greater. He came before Christ, but Christ was greater than David because he is greater than all. So he is the greater David. So this prophecy 
David says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, nor shall you leave him in the grave. And so the point that Peter is making here, uh, well, let's just move on and we'll get into that. Verse 29, Peter is going to speak to that. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the, of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter's logic is this. David said, I know you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption or leave his body in Hades or in the grave. And Peter says, since we know where David's grave is, we know that he's dead and in the ground and most definitely decomposing and, and rotting. He could not have been speaking of himself. He must have been speaking of another. And Peter goes on to affirm, yes, indeed, he is speaking prophetically of the resurrection of Christ. So we have that in the Psalms there. Peter said this is what was supposed to happen according to Psalms. David said it himself regarding the resurrection. Now he's going to quote the Psalms regarding the ascension. So verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, Peter is pointing out the fact that Jesus has indeed ascended. He has been exalted. He is at the right hand of God. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. And we all remember that Jesus said that it was profitable for the disciples that He go, because when He goes, He would send the Helper. And this is a fulfillment of that, John 16, 7. And so Peter is, is simply making the point that the Spirit has come, that they are all eyewitnesses of this, that indeed Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, He's quoting Psalms where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's really confusing language. But what it seems like David is saying prophetically is God said to Jesus, and David is speaking of this conversation that is happening, The Lord said to my Lord. So David is not talking about himself. Come and sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Christ has ascended. David has not. He is at the right hand of the Father. He said that when He did, He would pour out His Spirit, and He has. They are all eyewitnesses of this very fact. And then He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so that's really, He's, he's hitting it, guys, hard. He says, You did this. You remember, He was running in fear not long before this, and now He's boldly standing before the masses, before the religious crowd, all of them collectively, and saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. He has exalted Him. He has made Him Lord and Christ. And so He is exalting Jesus. He is putting Jesus in His rightful place before the crowd. He is testifying to the truth of the Gospel and to the fact that Jesus indeed rose from the grave. He has ascended on high. The Holy Spirit has come, and you are all witnesses of this very reality so now he's going to make application 
It's a good sermon, okay? He's giving Scripture. He's talking about how all these things were a fulfillment of that which was prophesied. And then he points to them. He calls them out. And then he gives application. Verse 37, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So that's a beautiful thing. They were cut. Have you ever been cut to the heart? I think many of us in here know what this is all about. You know when the Holy Spirit has you right in His sights and you got that right on your forehead, right on the heart. You know God is dealing with you. And I know that He's doing that right now in this, in this place. God is moving. His Spirit is cutting people to the heart. And they said, well, what do we do? What are we going to do? And He said, repent. That is, turn away. Turn away from your wickedness. Turn away from your lawlessness. Turn away from your rebelliousness and turn to God. So that's something that we lose sight of. For years, that's kind of what I thought Christianity was. Just stop doing all these things. And that seemed so hard to me, but I come to realize it's so much more glorious than that. It's turn from those things, but turn to something so much greater. Turn to God. Turn to the Lord. It's not so much what we're turning away from as much as what we are turning to. So he says, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. And so, have you repented of your sins? Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you been baptized? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Spirit? If you haven't, there's a problem here, guys. Because this is a, a, clear, a clear scriptural mandate. Peter is saying, this is, this is step number one. Do it. And I'm wondering how many people in here haven't even made it to this point. So take that seriously. We live in, a, in an age where people put a very small priority on baptism and, and kind of going the next step. They pray the prayer, they, they repent, and then they, they just kind of get stunted. They don't ever really move beyond that. They stay in adolescence. It ought not be. We're called to something so much greater. We're called to go deeper. Amen? Amen. Alright, so we'll kind of close up with this, this next uh, passage here. Now we're going to look at we're going to look at the culture of the early church. So this, this is what flows out of a Spirit-filled church. We talk about the culture of the church. You know, uh, you look around and you think, what, what is our culture regarding fellowship? Are we a fellowshipping church? What is our culture regarding evangelism? Are we an evangelizing church? What is our culture concerning giving? What is our culture concerning praying what is our culture concerning even just attendance in general you understand there are so many different markers that really will help understand what is the culture of your church what is important how are you doing in these areas and so we're going to see the culture of the early church verse 21 or 41 sorry then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So that day, 3,000 people came to Christ. They put their trust in the Lord. They received the message. They were gladly baptized. And then they were dedicated. They were dedicated to four things here. The Apostles' Doctrine. That is the teaching. New Testament teaching. What we're looking at today as we work our way through the New Testament, that was the, the message. That was the authority of the, the Apostles that which they received from Christ, that which they received from the Spirit, and they set forth to the church, that was the apostles' teaching. They were about that. And that is something that we seek to do here. That's why we go through the Word the way that we do. I am delivering to you guys not my own words, not from my own authority, but from the authority of this, the apostles' doctrine. They continued in fellowship. They were, they were, it was a partnership. It was a bond. They were a family. They didn't just hang out on occasions. They really did life together. They were truly, you know, in this time here, I mean, if you put your faith in Christ, you would most likely lose everything. You would lose your family. You would lose your livelihood. You would be put out of the synagogue, the, the community, religion of, of that time there. And so you had nothing. You had nobody. All you had was your church family. And they really counted on each other just to survive. And, you know, we don't have that so much here. And so we don't experience the fullness of what they have in that sense. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. I know what it's like to, to experience beautiful fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And some of us in this room, we don't know what that is. And I want to encourage you. You're missing out. You're not walking in the fullness of what Christ has for you if you're not walking in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. They continued in breaking of bread. This most likely speaks of uh, one obviously eating meals together. This was, a, this was a, considered to be a very intimate interaction to break bread with each other. But also, uh, undoubtedly, the Lord's Supper. The Lord left them that commandment to, to uh, every time they did break bread and, and drink of the cup to do it in remembrance of Him. And that was most certainly a practice of the early church. So they, they did that at what they would call love feast or agape feast. They would come together, that they would eat, they would share the Lord's Supper. And they were a praying church. They continued in prayer from the very beginning. And we'll see that more as we go through the book of Acts. They really modify or model that. So the culture there is there was great reverence. There was awe amongst the people. God was moving and they knew it. And the people were in awe of this. They were unified. I talked last week about how there's a big difference between not fighting and actually being united. And so just because we can kind of get along with each other without fighting does not mean that we have true unity. And so we have to come together with this common purpose, this goal, this mission. This is the one thing that we live for, that we are marked by, and we are on the same team and we are living for it. Amen? We are in this battle together. They gave to meet each other's needs. They were a very generous church. People were giving. They were selling their possessions just to be able to give to people who were without. So people were living sacrificially to care for the needs of others. They were very generous in their giving. They met regularly, corporately, house to house. They met in the temple 
in a large group, and they fellowship from house to house. And we, we seek to do that here today. And we have several home groups that are available, something I would encourage you guys to check out if you haven't already. That was a regular practice of the early church. They didn't have church buildings, so they could kind of meet at the temple corporately, but church, for the most part, happened in their homes. It says that they ate with gladness and simplicity of heart. I think this just spoke of a, the, the general spirit of the church. They were glad. They were happy. They were at peace. They ate their food with simplicity of heart and, and gladness. It's a sweet place to be. I think we all in here know, know what it's like to be bound up with anxiety and fear and uncertainty and so on and so forth. But knowing Christ and being filled with the Spirit, they knew peace. The peace of God, the peace with God. And they just lived a very simple life. They were content. They were happy with what they had. They ate their food with joy, with gladness, with simplicity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with the people. They had a good reputation amongst the people. The early Christians were really something else. You know, One of their first ministries was to go and collect dead bodies that, uh, for instance, like Rome, when they would crucify people and do different things, they would go find the bodies and go bury them. That was one of their first ministries. Or when they would, um, you know, they, they had a law set in place that if you had a child and didn't want it, you could just abandon it, leave it somewhere out into the elements to be eaten by a wild animal or to die of hypothermia, starvation, whatever. And the Christians would go and they would uh, take these babies in and care for them. So it was really, the Christians, man, first century, they were something else. And they had great favor with people. And the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. It was very evident that God's hand was on that church and that they were healthy and the culture was good and God was pleased and God was doing a work and He was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Let that be the case for us. You know, That's the cry of my heart is that our church would function like this and that we would be a healthy church, a happy and a whole church and that we would be about these things and that God's hand would be upon us and blessing that and we would see Him doing wonderful and new works in our church in our midst. Amen? Alright, well we'll close right there. We're going to have the worship team come up. We're going to close with a song. I asked them to do that song, um, You Came to My Rescue. I called and you answered. You came to my rescue and I want to be where you are. That is beautiful. Love that. And so I want to encourage you guys. We're going to have a few people up here who will pray for you. Whatever the cry of your heart may be. Maybe you're far from the Lord. Maybe you're cold. Maybe you need God to stir something up afresh in you. Maybe you don't know the Lord and you want to put your trust in the Lord today and you want to give your life to Him. We've been talking about being filled with the Spirit. Maybe you haven't been baptized. And when I talk about baptism, we understand what it means in the sense of water. A person is immersed down into the water. That's the word baptized. They are immersed. And then they come back up out of the water. That represents someone who has died. They have gone down into the grave and they have risen again to the newness of life and no longer to live for themselves, but to follow Christ. That's what baptism represents. It's a public proclamation that you have decided to follow Jesus. So in the same way we talk about being baptized in the Spirit, you are immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon you. You are drenched. And you are changed. Never to be the same. And maybe you desire that today. I would encourage you to come. And so we're going to have people up here. Brother David, Dave Wagner, Dalton, if you guys would come up here. Pastor Vince, if you're nearby. And uh, we're going to close with this song, and I want to encourage you, uh, whether you're in your seat, in the quietness of your heart, 
cry out to the Lord. Or if you want to come up here and be prayed for by, by the brothers, come. Father, we love You and we thank You for what You're doing in this room. We thank You that You spoke as Your Word went forth. And I pray that there would be great healing and ministry that would take place as people in faith step forward, whether they stay in their seat and cry out or come up here, God, that they would receive grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing, God. Have Your way in this room, Father. Pour Your Spirit out in this place. Encourage hearts. Save souls. Lord, bring glory to Your name. You're worthy. You are worthy to be praised, God. You're worthy to have every bit of us, Lord. May You have all of us. May You have all of us in here today, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.